Chapter thirty one, part seven of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter thirty one Invasion of Italy, Occupation of Territories by Barbarians, part seven. The situation of Spain, separated on all sides from the enemies of Rome, by the sea, by the mountains, and by the intermediate provinces, had secured the long tranquillity of that remote and sequestered country, and we may observe, as a sure symptom of domestic happiness, that, in a period of four hundred years, Spain furnished very few materials to the history of the Roman Empire. The footsteps of the barbarians— who, in the reign of Gallienus, had penetrated beyond the Pyrenees, was soon obliterated by the return of peace. And, in the fourth century of the Christian era, the cities of Emerita, or Meridia, of Cardubar, Seville, Bracara, and Tarragona, were numbered with the most illustrious of the Roman world. The various plenty of the animal, the vegetable, and the mineral kingdoms, was improved and manufactured by the skill of an industrious people, and the peculiar advantages of naval stores contributed to support an extensive and profitable trade. The arts and sciences flourished under the protection of the emperors, and if the character of the Spaniards was enfeebled by peace and servitude, the hostile approach of the Germans, who had spread terror and dissolution from the Rhine to the Pyrenees, seemed to rekindle some sparks of military ardour. As long as the defence of the mountains was entrusted to the hardy and faithful militia of the country, they successfully repelled the frequent attempts of the barbarians. But no sooner had the national troops been compelled to resign their post to the Honorian bands, in the service of Constantine, than the gates of Spain were treacherously betrayed to the public enemy about ten months before the sack of Rome by the Goths. The consciousness of guilt and the thirst of rapine prompted the mercenary guards of the Pyrenees to desert their station, to invite the arms of the Suervi, the Vandals, and the Alani, and to swell the torrent which was poured with irresistible violence from the frontiers of Gaul to the Sea of Africa. The misfortunes of Spain may be described in the language of its most eloquent historian, who has concisely expressed the passionate, and perhaps exaggerated, declamations of contemporary writers. The eruption of these nations was followed by the most dreadful calamities. As the barbarians exercised their indiscriminate cruelty on the fortunes of the Romans and the Spaniards, and ravaged with equal fury the cities and the open country, the progress of famine reduced the miserable inhabitants to feed on the flesh of their fellow-creatures and even the wild beasts, who multiplied without control in the desert, were exasperated, by the taste of blood, and the impatience of hunger, boldly to attack and devour their human prey. Pestilence soon appeared, the inseparable companion of famine. A large proportion of the people were swept away, and the groans of the dying excited only the envy of their surviving friends. At length the barbarians— satiated with carnage and rapine, and afflicted by the contagious evils which they themselves had introduced, fixed their permanent seats in the depopulated country. 
The ancient Galicia, whose limits included the kingdom of Old Castile, was divided between the Suevi and the Vandals. The Alani were scattered over the provinces of Carthagena and Lusitania, from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic Ocean, and the fruitful territory of Baetica was allotted to the Selinghi, another branch of the Vandalic nation. After regulating the partition, the conquerors contracted with their new subjects some reciprocal engagements of protection and obedience. The lands were again cultivated, and the towns and villages were again occupied by a captive people. The greatest part of the Spaniards was even disposed to prefer this new condition of poverty and barbarism to the severe oppressions of the Roman government. Yet there were many who still asserted their native freedom, and who refused, more especially in the mountains of Galicia, to submit to the barbarian yoke. The important present of the heads of Jovinus and Sebastian had approved the friendship of Adolphus, and restored Gaul to the obedience of his brother Honorius. Peace was incompatible with the situation and temper of the king of the Goths. He readily accepted the proposal of turning his victorious arms against the barbarians of Spain. The troops of Constantius intercepted his communication with the seaports of Gaul, and gently pressed his march towards the Pyrenees. He passed the mountains and surprised, in the name of the emperor, the city of Barcelona. The fondness of Adolphus for his Roman bride was not abated by time or possession, and the birth of a son, surnamed from his illustrious grandsire Theodosius, appeared to fix him forever in the interest of the Republic. The loss of that infant, whose remains were deposited in a silver coffin in one of the churches near Barcelona, afflicted his parents. But the grief of the Gothic king was suspended by the labours of the field, and the cause of his victories was soon interrupted by domestic treason. He had imprudently received into his service one of the followers of Sarus, a barbarian of a daring spirit, but of a diminutive stature, whose secret desire of revenging the death of his beloved patron was continually irritated by the sarcasms of his insolent master. Adolphius was assassinated in the palace of Barcelona. The laws of the succession were violated by a tumultuous faction, and a stranger to the royal race, Singeric, the brother of Sarus himself, was seated on the Gothic throne. The first act of his reign was the inhuman murder of the six children of Adolphus, the issue of a former marriage whom he tore, without pity, from the feeble arms of a venerable bishop. The unfortunate Placidia, instead of the respectful compassion which she might have excited in the most savage beasts, was treated with cruel and wanton insult. The daughter of the Emperor Theodosius, confounded among a crowd of vulgar captives, was compelled to march on foot above twelve miles before the horse of a barbarian, the assassin of her husband, whom Placidia loved and lamented. But Placidia soon obtained the pleasure of revenge, and the view of her ignominious sufferings might rouse an indignant people against the tyrant, who was assassinated on the seventh day of his usurpation. After the death of Synegeric, the free choice of the nation bestowed the Gothic sceptre on Wallia, whose warlike and ambitious temper appeared, in the beginning of his reign, extremely hostile to the Republic. 
he marched in arms from Barcelona to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean, which the ancients revered and dreaded as the boundary of the world. But when he reached the southern promontory of Spain, and, from the rock now covered by the fortress of Gibraltar, contemplated the neighbouring and fertile coast of Africa, Wallia resumed the designs of conquest, which had been interrupted by the death of Alaric. The winds and waves again disappointed the enterprise of the Goths, and the minds of a superstitious people were deeply affected by the repeated disasters of storms and shipwrecks. In this disposition the successor of Adolphus no longer refused to listen to a Roman ambassador, whose proposals were enforced by the real, or supposed, approach of a numerous army, under the conduct of the brave Constantius. A solemn treaty was stipulated and observed. Placidia was honourably restored to her brother. Six hundred thousand measures of wheat were delivered to the hungry Goths, and Wallia engaged to draw his sword in the service of the empire. A bloody war was instantly excited among the barbarians of Spain, and the contending princes are said to have addressed their letters, their ambassadors, and their hostages, to the throne of the Western Empire, exhorting him to remain a tranquil spectator of their contest, the events of which must be favourable to the Romans, by the mutual slaughter of their common enemies. The Spanish war was obstinately supported, during three campaigns, with desperate valour and various success, and the martial achievements of Wallia diffused through the empire the superior renown of the Gothic hero. He exterminated the Selingi, who had irretrievably ruined the elegant plenty of the province of Baetica. He slew in battle the king of the Alani, and the remains of those Scythian wanderers, who escaped from the field, instead of choosing a new leader, humbly sought a refuge under the standard of the Vandals, with whom they were ever afterwards confounded. The Vandals themselves, and the Suevi yielded to the efforts of the invincible Goths. The promiscuous multitude of barbarians, whose retreat had been intercepted, were driven into the mountains of Galicia, where they still continued, in a narrow compass and on barren soil, to exercise their domestic and implacable hostilities. In the pride of victory, Wallia was faithful to his engagements. He restored his Spanish conquests to the obedience of Honorius, and the tyranny of the imperial officers soon reduced an oppressed people to regret the time of their barbarian servitude. While the event of the war was still doubtful, the first advantages obtained by the arms of Wallia had encouraged the court of Ravenna to decree the honours of a triumph to their feeble sovereign. He entered Rome like the ancient conquerors of nations, and, if the monuments of servile corruption had not long since met with the fate which they deserved, we should probably find that the crowd of poets and orators, of magistrates and bishops, applauded the fortune, the wisdom, and the invincible courage of the Emperor Honorius. Such a triumph might have been justly claimed by the ally of Rome, if Wallia, before he repassed the Pyrenees, had extirpated the seeds of the Spanish war. His victorious Goths, forty-three years after they had passed the Danube, were established, according to the faith of treaties, in the possession of the second Aquitaine, a maritime province between the Garonne and the Loire, 
under the civil and ecclesiastical jurisdiction of Bordeaux. That metropolis, advantageously situated for the trade of the ocean, was built in a regular and elegant form, and its numerous inhabitants were distinguished among the Gauls by their wealth, their learning, and the politeness of their manners. The adjacent province, which had been fondly compared to the Garden of Eden, is blessed with a fruitful soil and a temperate climate. The face of the country displayed the arts and the rewards of industry, and the Goths, after their martial toils, luxuriously exhausted the rich vineyards of Aquitaine. The Gothic limits were enlarged by the additional gift of some neighbouring diocese, and the successors of Alaric fixed their royal residence at the Luce, which included five populous quarters, or cities, within the spacious circuit of its walls. About the same time, in the last years of the reign of Honorius, the Goths, the Burgundians, and the Franks obtained a permanent seat and dominion in the provinces of Gaul. The liberal grant of the usurper Juvenus to his Burgundian allies was confirmed by the lawful emperor. The lands of the first, or upper Germany, were ceded to those formidable barbarians, and they gradually occupied, either by conquest or treaty, the two provinces which still retain, with the titles of duchy and county, the national appellation of Burgundy. The Franks, the valiant and faithful allies of the Roman Republic, were soon tempted to imitate the invaders, whom they had so bravely resisted. Treves, the capital of Gaul, was pillaged by their lawless bands, and the humble colony which they so long maintained in the district of Toxandia, in Brabant, insensibly multiplied along the banks of the Meuse and Skeld, till their independent power filled the whole extent of the second or lower Germany. These facts may be sufficiently justified by the historic evidence, but the foundation of the French monarchy by Faramond, the conquests, the laws, and even the existence of that hero, have been justly arraigned by the impartial severity of modern criticism. The ruin of the opulent provinces of Gaul may be dated from the establishment of these barbarians, whose alliance was dangerous and oppressive, and who capriciously impelled, by interest or passion, to violate the public peace. A heavy and partial ransom was imposed on the surviving provincials, who had escaped the calamities of war. The fairest and most fertile lands were assigned to the rapacious strangers for the use of their families, their slaves, and their cattle, and the trembling natives relinquished with a sigh the inheritance of their fathers. Yet these domestic misfortunes, which are seldom the lot of a vanquished people, had been felt and inflicted by the Romans themselves, not only in the insolence of foreign conquest, but in the madness of civil discord. The triumvirs prescribed eighteen of the most flourishing colonies of Italy, and distributed their lands and houses to the veterans who revenged the death of Caesar, and oppressed the liberty of their country. Two poets of unequal fame have deplored, in similar circumstances, the loss of their patrimony, but the legionnaires of Augustus appear to have surpassed, in violence and injustice, the barbarians who invaded Gaul under the reign of Honorius. It was not without the utmost difficulty that Virgil escaped from the sword of the centurion, 
who had usurped his farm in the neighbourhood of Mantua. But Paulinus of Bordeaux received a sum of money from his Gothic purchaser, which he accepted with pleasure and surprise. And though it was much inferior to the real value of his estate, this act of rapine was disguised by some colours of moderation and equity. The odious name of conquerors was softened into the mild and friendly appellation of the guests of the Romans. And the barbarians of Gaul, more especially the Goths, repeatedly declared that they were bound to the people by the ties of hospitality, and to the emperor by the duty of allegiance and military service. The title of Honorius and his successors, their laws and their civil magistrates, was still respected in the provinces of Gaul, of which they had resigned the possession to the barbarian allies. And the kings, who exercised a supreme and independent authority over their native subjects, ambitiously solicited the more honourable rank of master-generals of the imperial armies. Such was the involuntary reverence which the Roman name still impressed on the minds of those warriors, who had borne away in triumph the spoils of the capital. While Italy was ravaged by the Goths, and a succession of feeble tyrants oppressed the provinces beyond the Alps, the British island separated itself from the body of the Roman Empire. The regular forces which guarded that remote province had been gradually withdrawn, and Britain was abandoned without defence to the Saxon pirates and the savages of Ireland and Caledonia. The Britons, reduced to this extremity, no longer relied on the tardy and doubtful aid of a declining monarchy. They assembled in arms, repelled the invaders, and rejoiced in the important discovery of their own strength. Afflicted by similar calamities, and actuated by the same spirit, the Armorican provinces, a name which comprehended the maritime countries of Gaul between the Seine and the Loire, resolved to imitate the examples of the neighbouring island. They expelled the Roman magistrates, who acted under the authority of the usurper Constantine, and a free government was established among the people who had so long been subject to the arbitrary will of a master. The independence of Britain and Armorica soon confirmed by Honorius himself, the lawful emperor of the West. And the letters, by which he committed to the new states the care of their own safety, might be interpreted as an absolute and perpetual abdication of the exercise and rights of sovereignty. This interpretation was, in some measure, justified by the event. After the usurpers of Gaul had successively fallen, the maritime provinces were restored to the empire, Yet their obedience was imperfect and precarious. The vain, inconstant, rebellious disposition of the people was incompatible either with freedom or servitude. And Armorica, though it could not long maintain the form of a republic, was agitated by frequent and destructive revolts. Britain was irrecoverably lost. But, as the emperors wisely acquiesced in the independence of a remote province, the separation was not embittered by the reproach of tyranny or rebellion, and the claims of allegiance and protection were succeeded by the mutual and voluntary offices of national friendship. This revolution dissolved the artificial fabric of civil and military government, and the independent country, 
during a period of forty years, till the descent of the Saxons, was ruled by the authority of the clergy, the nobles, and the municipal towns. One, Zosimus, who alone had preserved the memory of this singular transaction, very accurately observes that the letters of Honorius were addressed to the cities of Britain. Under the protection of the Romans, ninety-two considerable towns had arisen in the several parts of that great province, and among these, thirty-three cities were distinguished above the rest by their superior privileges and importance. Each of these cities, as in all the other provinces of the empire, formed a legal corporation, for the purpose of regulating their domestic policy, and the powers of municipal government were distributed among annual magistrates, a select senate, and the assembly of the people, according to the original model of the Roman constitution. The management of a common revenue, the exercise of civil and criminal jurisdiction, and the habits of public counsel and command, were inherent to these petty republics. And, when they asserted their independence, the youth of the city, and of the adjacent districts, would naturally range themselves under the standard of the magistrate. But the desire of obtaining the advantages, and of escaping the burdens, of political society, is a perpetual and inexhaustible source of discord. Nor can it reasonably be presumed, that the restoration of British freedom was exempt from tumult and faction. The pre-eminence of birth and fortune must have been frequently violated by bold and popular citizens, and the haughty nobles, who complained that they were become the subjects of their own servants, would sometimes regret the reign of an arbitrary monarch. 2. The jurisdiction of each city over the adjacent country was supported by the patrimonial influence of the principal senators. And the smaller towns, the villages, and the proprietors of land, consulted their own safety by adhering to the shelter of these rising republics. The sphere of their attraction was proportioned to the respective degrees of their wealth and populousness. But the hereditary lords of ample possessions, who were not oppressed by the neighbourhood of any powerful city, aspired to the rank of independent princes, and boldly exercised the rights of peace and war. The gardens and villas, which exhibited some faint imitation of Italian elegance, would soon be converted into strong castles, the refuge, in time of danger, of the adjacent country. The produce of the land was applied to purchase arms and horses, to maintain a military force of slaves, of peasants, and of licentious followers, and the chieftain might assume, within his own domain, the powers of a civil magistrate. Several of these British chiefs might be the genuine posterity of ancient kings, and many more would be tempted to adopt this honourable genealogy, and to vindicate their hereditary claims, which had been suspended by the usurpation of the Caesars. Their situation and their hopes would dispose them to affect the dress, the language, and the customs of their ancestors. If the princes of Britain relapsed into barbarism, while the cities studiously preserved the laws and manners of Rome, the whole island must have been gradually divided by the distinction of two national parties, again broken into a thousand subdivisions of war and faction, by the various provocations of interest and resentment. 
the public strength, instead of being united against a foreign enemy, was consumed in obscure and intestine quarrels, and the personal merit which had placed a successful leader at the head of his equals might enable him to subdue the freedom of some neighbouring cities, and to claim a rank among the tyrants who infested Britain after the dissolution of the Roman government. 3. The British church might be composed of thirty or forty bishops, with an adequate proportion of the inferior clergy, and the want of riches, for they seem to have been poor, would compel them to deserve the public esteem by a decent and exemplary behaviour. The interest, as well as the temper of the clergy, was favourable to the peace and union of their distracted country. Those salutary lessons might be frequently inculcated in their popular discourses, and the episcopal synods were the only councils that could pretend to the weight and authority of a national assembly. In such councils, where the princes and magistrates sat promiscuously with the bishops, the important affairs of the state, as well as of the church, might be freely debated. Differences reconciled, alliances formed, contributions imposed, wise resolutions often concerted, and sometimes executed. And there is reason to believe that, in moments of extreme danger, a pendragon or dictator was elected by the general consent of the Britons. These pastoral cares, so worthy of the episcopal character, were interrupted, however, by zeal and superstition, and the British clergy incessantly laboured to eradicate the Pelagian heresy, which they abhorred, as the peculiar disgrace of their native country. It is somewhat remarkable, or rather it is extremely natural, that the revolt of Britain and Armorica should have introduced an appearance of liberty into the obedient provinces of Gaul. In a solemn edict, filled with the strongest assurances of that paternal affection which princes so often express, and so seldom feel, the Emperor Honorius promulgated his intention of convening an annual assembly of the seven provinces. A name peculiarly appropriated to Aquitaine and the ancient Nabonese, which had so long exchanged their Celtic rudeness for the useful and elegant arts of Italy. The seat of government and commerce was appointed for the place of the assembly, which regularly continued twenty-eight days, from the 15th of August to the 13th of September of every year. It consisted of the Praetorian prefect of the Gauls, of seven provincial governors, one consular, and six presidents of the magistrates and perhaps the bishops of about sixty cities, and of a competent, though indefinite, number of the most honourable and opulent possessors of land, who might justly be considered as the representatives of their country. They were empowered to interpret and communicate the laws of their sovereign, to expose the grievances and wishes of their constituents, to moderate the excessive or unequal weight of taxes, and to deliberate on every subject of local or national importance that could tend to the restoration of the peace and prosperity of the seven provinces. If such an institution, which gave the people an interest in their own government, had been universally established by Trajan or the Antonines, the seeds of public wisdom and virtue might have been cherished and propagated in the empire of Rome. The privileges of the subject would have secured the throne of the monarch. The abuses of an arbitrary administration might have been prevented, in some degree, or corrected, 
by the interposition of these representative assemblies, and the country would have been defended against a foreign enemy by the arms of natives and freemen. Under the mild and generous influence of liberty, the Roman Empire might have remained invincible and immortal, or if its excessive magnitude and the instability of human affairs had opposed such perpetual continuance, its vital and constituent members might have separately preserved their vigour and independence. But in the decline of the empire, when every principle of health and life had been exhausted, the tardy application of this partial remedy was incapable of producing any important or salutary effects. The Emperor Honorius expresses his surprise that he must compel the reluctant provinces to accept a privilege which they should ardently have solicited. A fine of three or even five pounds of gold was imposed on the absent representatives, who seem to have declined this imaginary gift of a free constitution, as the last and most cruel insult of their oppressors. End of chapter 31, part 7